We'll be reading uh, beginning in verse 25, Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you that we have it. We don't have to wonder what you think about so many things in life because you've spoken. So, Father, I I ask that you speak this morning, that we hear your voice more than any other voice. Spirit, may you make our hearts receptive to your truth, that you would empower life, obedience, repentance, and faith. For the glory of Christ in our midst, for the glory of Christ in our city, for the glory of Christ in the nations. We ask these things. Amen. So we've begun 2017 by looking at two topics that are essential to our existence as believers. We've looked at the Word of God, the Scriptures, and prayer, uh, without which we would not be Christians, without which we would not be able to walk with God in our relationship with Him. And we're asking God to more and more make us a people who are deeply engaged in both of these issues. And now we're spending this week and next week looking at two issues that have gospel implications that are huge in our culture. Today we'll look at racial reconciliation in conjunction with Martin Luther King holiday tomorrow. And then next Sunday we'll look at sanctity of human life in conjunction with the Roe v. Wade anniversary that made abortions legal in America on January the 22nd, 1973. As I've been preparing this week, I've been incredibly grateful for... Uh, being a part of a church that is willing to do this, for being a part of a, a church that has learned from other churches. Like I've shared with you before, this idea to start our year looking at these topics is not original with us. And to allow these, these difficult issues to be examined by the gospel and to see how the gospel speaks so clearly to these issues and, and help us navigate them because they, they are difficult. And I love that it's these two issues. Racial reconciliation and sanctity of human life. Two issues that are related in some ways. Racism is a sanctity of human life issue, as we'll see in a little bit. 
And sanctity of human life is also a racism issue. Um, from the origins of the abortion movement and the white supremacist views of people like Margaret Sanger uh, to the fact that today um, disproportionately abortions occur among minorities. Um, and so some people, well, they shouldn't do that. Just tell them not to do that. It's wrong. Well, um, disproportionately minorities are impoverished and they don't see as many options as some of us who have more financial means see. And they are targeted with advertising and abortion clinics disproportionately in their communities. And so it's not as simple as they shouldn't do that. These two issues are also two issues that fairly or not have been co-opted by the two major political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. If, we're, if you speak out against racial injustices, typically you'll be considered part of the more liberal political party. And minorities, especially the black population, vote overwhelmingly with the more liberal political party. And if you're pro-life, you're typically part of the conservative political party. And pro-lifers vote mostly with the conservative political parties. And we as a church, we're not co-opted by anybody. We're not allegiant to any political party. We speak against all of them. And we also say what's good in all of them. Because it's God's grace in what's good, and it's the presence of sin in what's bad. And that's in everything. And so our allegiance is to King Jesus, and so because we're allegiant to King Jesus and the gospel, we can say that we care and advocate for both of these issues and not be contradictory and have a place to stand. Because we stand on the rock that is Christ. And Jesus has something to say about both of those issues and all issues. But wait, 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 wait. I thought the gospel is just about people going to heaven when we die. I thought the gospel is just about being a good Christian. Go to church, read your Bible, give your tithes, sing some songs. Well, there are a lot of people who think that. That's all we should do, is do those things. The gospel really doesn't speak to all these other issues. In fact, that was a perspective in the 1960s by the pastor of First Baptist Church, Laurel, Mississippi. Reverend Marsh uh, was a well-respected pastor uh, of First Baptist Church, living and working in Laurel, Mississippi, a, a somewhat small town. Also living in Laurel, Mississippi was Sam Bowers, the imperial uh, wizard of the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Sam Bowers was uh, suspected of plotting at least nine murders of African Americans and civil rights workers, 75 bombings of black churches, and numerous other beatings and assaults. They both lived in the same town. How did the pastor of the leading church in town address this issue during those tense times. Well, according to his son, Charles, who wrote this, there's no doubt my father loathed the Klan when he thought about them at all. In his heart of hearts, he considered slavery a sin. Racisms like Germany's or South Africa's an offense to the faith. And he taught me as much in occasional pronouncements on Southern history over homework assignments. He said, there's no justification for what we did to the Negro. It was an evil thing, and we were wrong. Nevertheless, the work of the Lord lay elsewhere. Be faithful in church attendance, for your presence can, if nothing else, show that you are on God's side when the doors of the church are opened, he advised in the church bulletin. Of course, packing the pews is, is one of any minister's fantasies. There's always the wish to grow, grow, grow. But the daily installments of Mississippi burning, the crushing poverty of the town's Negro inhabitants, the rituals of white supremacy... The smell of terror pervading the streets like masonite stench did not figure into his sermons or in our dinner table conversations or in the talk of the church. 
These were to a good Baptist preacher like him finally matters of politics, having little or nothing to do with the spiritual geography of a pilgrim's journey to paradise. Unwanted annoyances, yes. Sad evidences of our human failings, certainly, but all of these would be rectified in some eschatological future when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. And so people have taken that perspective. That we shouldn't deal with these cultural issues. Let's just come to church, read the Bible, pray, be good people in our culture. But contrast that with how Jesus understood his mission in these terms, according to Luke 4, 18-19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the kingdom he came to bring. The kingdom that he said in Mark chapter 1 is here, now. The kingdom that is already being experienced. This is what it would look like. In fact, in Matthew 25, Jesus gives us insight into a day of judgment waiting in the future. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did, you see, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these... You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice it did not say, come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For you read your entire Bible, year after year after year. And you had consistent quiet times. And you went to Sunday morning worship gatherings all the time. And you gave money to the offering plate. And you taught the kids in the back. And you were in the nursery. And you sang songs and you were a pastor or a deacon. It doesn't say any of that. I don't want to play, downplay personal piety and the importance of being a part of a local church and engaging with God in His Word and prayer. We just spent the last two weeks talking about how important that is, right? But the reality of a relationship with Jesus who came on mission to preach the gospel, a gospel that is more than just where you go when you die, but a gospel that transforms life and culture now. As the kingdom takes root and grows, the reality of that relationship with Jesus means fruit will be born. That will look like Luke 4, Matthew 25. 
The blind giving sight. The oppressed being set free. The liberty set free. The, the captives set free. The sick being visited. Those in prison being visited. The thirsty getting drink. The hungry getting food. The naked being clothed. In fact, in the early years of the church, one of the primary leaders of the church, Peter, got a vision from God in Acts chapter 10 to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles because it was hard for Jews to see this. In fact, Paul would, uh, Paul would later say in Ephesians 3 that this idea of Jews and Gentiles being one body in the church is a mystery, something they didn't ever see coming, something that was a, a new thing revealed to them. And so God had to send visions and very strong messages to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Peter got this vision in Acts 10, and so they took the gospel to Cornelius, and Cornelius, a Roman centurion, was saved. But later on, Peter was gathered with some brothers, and he was showing favoritism to the Jews over the Gentiles. He wasn't associating when they'd have meals with the Gentiles. He was just hanging out with his Jewish boys, because he didn't want to associate with a different ethnicity. And Paul had to come along Galatians 2 and confront him. And this is what he said in Galatians 2.14. When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The gospel determined that Peter's favoritism of one ethnicity over another was not right. The gospel is more than where you go when you die. The gospel has impact now in this life. And our lives are either in step with the truth of the gospel or out of step with the truth of the gospel. And we need each other to come along and say, this is good. Praise God. This is not right. Let's ask God to help us. And so the gospel, the good news of Jesus coming and bringing his kingdom now is that it changes, yes, our eternal life. It does give us the hope of being with God in his eternal kingdom forever. But that kingdom starts now. And it changes everything and brings life and joy and peace and unity among different people in amazing ways. And the gospel certainly has the power to heal the wounds and bind together people of different ethnicities in the city of Monroe and in the nations around the world. Now we mentioned in the previous weeks that we're walking these topics through these four questions um, to provide a lens. I think I have a those four questions provide a lens through which we see these things because we don't want to just do good things so we can be good people. We, we are good because God is good. God has made us good in Jesus and that's why we go do good things. Everything good that we do flows from an identity we receive from God through Christ which flows from the work that God has done through Christ which flows from the character and nature of God. Who is God? What has He done in Christ? Who are we? And then what do we do? You have to see that. Everything flows from what God has already done. And there's many ways we could think about this idea of racial reconciliation in a lot of these four questions. One I mentioned earlier is as a sanctity of human life issue. So the next slide, God is creator and giver of all life. All created human, humans are created in His image. Every image, every human rather, is an image bearer of God. Therefore, we show respect, honor, value, and dignity to every single human being just because they're human. That's it. Simple as that. I've heard people say things like, well, you've got to earn my respect. Well, well, people definitely have to earn your trust. Right? You don't just let anybody in your house. You don't just let anybody watch your kids. You don't just let anybody perform surgery on you or just anybody work on your car. You don't just date anybody. People do have to earn your trust, but no human being has to earn our respect. They're human. 
They get it. 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That word there, honor, is translated in some versions as respect. Respect everyone. You're a human being. You get it. So that's one way you can look at this uh, uh, racial reconciliation issue. But I want to look at uh, a little bit different path, primarily using this very well-known story in Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan. Now, in this story, Jesus is approached by this lawyer who was really more of a religious law expert than what we would think of as a lawyer. You might think of him more as a seminary professor. These guys were constantly, along with other religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, constantly trying to entrap Jesus to test him, to try and make him reveal that he's not really who he says he is. Y'all think he's great because he's doing all these miracles and teaching people and loving people, but we know there's something up here. So we want to ask questions, we want to find some way to get him to reveal he's not a good Jew, he's not a good rabbi, he's not really this great Messiah. So in this encounter, he asked Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in the minds of the people, in the minds of this lawyer, this is a question about the law. How do I obey the law in order to inherit eternal life? And so will Jesus reveal that there is a way to eternal life outside of the law? And in revealing that, will he show that he really doesn't love the law, respect the law, and thus we can get rid of this guy because he's not a good Jew? And Jesus, as he always does, masterfully turns the question back on him. Knowing that this is a question about the law, he asks in verse 26, what is written in your law? How do you read it? Now the law is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. Jesus is not asking him to recite the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That would be weird to have that in the middle of the book of Luke. It's like a really long Bible. He's asking Jesus, or Jesus rather is asking him... How do you sum up the law? What is the essence of the law? And the lawyer knocks it out of the park. He gives the same exact answer about how to sum up the law that Jesus would later give in Luke that he also gives later in Mark chapter 12. We'll look at later on this year. What the law really is, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes, do this and live. Now, this is where the lawyer reveals himself and reveals his questionable motivations. Now, we know he was testing Jesus because Luke told us. But in the course of the conversation, he really reveals his motives here. Because when you're confronted with the reality that eternal life is loving God 100% of the time with 100% of yourself, then his response should have been, really? That's impossible. But instead... He tries to tighten the screws even more on Jesus. Okay, then, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus, knowing this guy, has wrong intentions, he knows the heart of man, he drops this story on him that's going to blow his mind and the mind of anybody else standing there listening. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to dig deep into all the details of the story, but, but you get the basic premise. A man is robbed on the road and left for dead. Two men pass by with the opportunity to help, a Levite and a priest. Two of the most respected offices and positions in, in first century Judaism. These aren't like the Pharisees and Sadducees who were also respected. These men, the Levites, were a tribe of Israelites in charge of taking care of the temple. And the priests were this select group of men who were given charge to manage the, the temple, to perform the sacrifices, to be this intermediary between God and man, to, to advocate for the people before God. Highly respected. They see the man... 
dying. They scoot over and continue on their way. Then a Samaritan comes by. Probably the most hated person by a Jew. One of the great insults that you could call a Jew would be call him a Samaritan. It's like hard to find this modern day analogy from our life that could help us understand. It's like way more in Alabama LSU or uh, the Cowboys and the Redskins or the Lakers and Celtics or any of these analogies of animosity that we think of. The Hatfield McCoys might get closer to it because there's some relationship there. The Samaritans were a class of people considered half-breed Jews. They were Jews who were conquered by Assyria in the northern ten tribes around 722 B.C., and the Assyrians flooded the, the ten tribes, flooded that part of the country with other races of people and diluted the genetic, the gene pool of the Jews to make these half-breed Jews. Now all the Jews recognized that when God judged them by sending the Assyrians to conquer them and later sending the Babylonians to conquer the, north, the southern tribes, that the reason God did that is because of their disobedience and rebellion. And so the reason the Samaritans were in existence is because the northern ten tribes were so wicked and rebelled against God, disobeyed God. They put up with kings like Ahab and Jezebel. So it's their fault that they were uh, deluded with all these other races of people. And they were hated deeply, deeply by the Jews. Jesus was called a Samaritan in John chapter 8. Huge insult. A common prayer for a Jew in the first century would go something like this. Lord, give me a good day. Give me this day my daily bread. Keep me safe today. Lord, I pray there will be no Samaritans in the resurrection on the last day. Let me have a good day. Give me my food. Protect me. And make sure all the Samaritans go to hell. Like, what if you pray for a group of people like that every morning? Deep hatred. And Jesus paints the Samaritan as a hero who stops and at great risk and cost shows great compassion and mercy to the man who's left dead. And at the end of the story, Jesus asks what should be a rhetorical question. Who is the, the, the neighbor? And the, and the lawyer correctly answered, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now the connection to the racial reconciliation should be obvious. This was a, an ethnic issue. In fact, Tim Keller says, in talking about this passage, that it's because of the racism in the lawyer and in the Jews who are listening to this story, the racism against the Samaritans, is why Jesus used this story. You say you love God and love your neighbor. Well, I'm going to tell you a story that reveals you don't. Because you're not going to be able to handle this. You, in fact, hate your neighbor. And don't show mercy to people of different ethnicities. The connection for us is this. While we would wholeheartedly affirm the dignity and worth of all human beings created in the image of God, regardless of skin color or ethnicity, when confronted with the issue of racial injustice in our city and in our nation, are we more prone to pass along on the other side back into our white worlds? Or would, be we, would, be we, would we be willing to do the hard thing to show compassion and mercy? You see, our temptation to pass along and not show compassion or mercy could be for many of the same reasons that the Levite and the priest passed on the other side and did not help. I'm a member of the Levites. I help care for the temple. I'm a priest. I offer sacrifices. I have important things to do. I don't have time to fool with this poor 
bum who's going to die anyway. I can't be seen touching this guy. What will people think of me? They'll know I'm unclean. And then I go through all these religious ceremonies to get clean again. I won't be able to do my important job. And then what will people think of me? I'm in a hurry. I don't have time. In fact, this could be dangerous. What if the robbers are still under, around the rock, around the corner, waiting for me to stop, and they're going to do the same thing to me? This guy needs serious medical attention. This is going to cost me way too much money to help this guy out. Or if I post this on my social media account, do you know how much negativity will be showing up on my page? I don't have the time or the energy to deal with that. Guys, as a predominantly white church, we can be tempted to see this issue of racial injustice and do the same exact thing for the same exact reasons. And guys, we have that luxury. We have that freedom because we, li- we can live isolated from these issues and not deal with them unless we choose to. We can pass by our brothers and sisters who are in the minority who suffer in ways that we don't get and continue down the road back into our lives and no one has to even know that we did not help our engage. But what I'm asking the Spirit to help us see is this. Our minority brothers and sisters don't have that luxury. They live every day in a world that does afford them some privileges in a place like America and freedoms that are incredible, but also facing systemic racial injustices that simply exist because of the history of our nation. And how can God help us show compassion and mercy? J. Daniel Hayes, a white scholar, writes a book called From Every People and Every Nation. He says in that book that black scholars say that racial division in the church is one of the central problems for the church today, while many white scholars are saying, what problem? You're fine. You're not as sick as you think you are. You, you got yourself in that situation probably on your own. Let me just pass by on the other side and continue back into my white life. A variety of pastors were asked to respond to this from different ethnicities. Listen to some of the responses by our black brothers who pastor churches in the U.S. Ricky Armstrong, a pastor in Miami. Given the history of America, many whites have been conditioned to deny the existence of racial problems. Most whites do not have to live in an environment controlled by minorities. Some view racism as primarily an individual issue as opposed to a corporate problem. Most whites fail to address the institutional nature of racism. Most whites are not aware of the various ways that culture is used as a tool of racism. Most white pastors and ministers have refused to address the race problem biblically or otherwise. Many white evangelicals are more loyal to their culture than they are to the gospel. And he also quotes Billy Graham, who in 1993 said that racism both in the world and in the church, is one of the greatest barriers to the world evangelization. Eric Redman, a pastor in Maryland. My white brothers of the faith often miss the race problem. I don't feel that this is due to overt racism on the part of many. Instead, it's because my white brothers must work at seeing life through the eyes of an African or Hispanic or Asian or Native American. 
all of whom are naturally and daily race conscious. And for them, it's an everyday occurrence to be race conscious when you're confronted with the reality that you're the only minority in the boardroom or, in the, or, or, or on the faculty. Or you're the one being profiled by security cameras or stereotyped as a class below white cultural and class standards. The potential victim of discrimination by mortgage lenders and human resource hiring specialists. A parent concerned about his or her child being mistreated as the only minority in a classroom or at a teen camp, even a Christian teen camp. That's the reality of the world all the time. Now, I'm not asking and not expecting or desiring for anyone to experience white guilt or demonstrate some kind of pathetic pity on a people, feel sorry for people. But we can be honest about the reality of white privilege, which allows us to see our brother and sister in need or in pain at the racial inequalities that exist in our nation and culture. And we have the privilege to pass along on the other side and go back into our lives and not have to deal with this unless we choose to. Unless by God's grace we show mercy and compassion. Which is what I'm praying for the Spirit to do in us. Compassion in the Greek is a a word that literally means to be moved in your bowels. In the Judaic Judaic culture... Um, we talk about love and feelings as being a heart thing, but they understood the heart to be the centrality of the person, the essence of the person. They describe feelings and emotions in the bowels. And so when it says that someone has compassion, it literally means they were moved in their gut. And it's a word that is most used of Jesus. Like if you're reading through the Bible this year and you're reading through the New Testament, you should just make note of every time you see the word compassion. It talks about Jesus as being compassionate to the broken and the hurting of culture and society. All the time. So how would this kind of compassion look in our culture on this issue of racial reconciliation? Entire books have been written about this. Let me just throw a few out. I would start with your heart. What is your immediate response when you see pain and suffering at incidences that involve racial tension? What do you feel? When people are shot at traffic stops, is your immediate reaction to weep and grieve for the loss of human life and the continued presence of racial tension or be skeptical? They probably deserved it. They did something wrong. Criminal. Smoking dope. Cop surely isn't racist. How does your heart respond when you see black men and women in positions of power speaking up about racial injustice? Like even if we don't agree with all their political positions, are we so opposed to them that we can't even agree when they speak on issues where the problem solutions are more obvious? Or maybe, examine your heart, there's some hidden racism that's not comfortable with black men and black women being in positions of power that we have to submit to. Like we should all be able to celebrate the fact that America is finishing up eight years of the first black American president. Like that line has been crossed. That door is now open. This doesn't mean we agree with all of President Obama's decisions and positions. His position on abortion is atrocious, horrific. 
That doesn't alone mean I can't be thankful that God ordained at least for that door to be opened in a nation that has been plagued by this issue since its, since its foundation. For other black men and black women to one day be our president, hopefully who will be more conservative in issues that matter to life and the kingdom of God. And no, the racial tensions aren't better after eight years of a black president. If anything, his presidency has only exposed what is still in the hearts of America. And seeing a black man elected president is not enough to solve the racism and fear that still exists in our country. But if you can't celebrate how that fact alone that he became president is God's grace ordained for our nation, that he is an amazing model of a loving husband and loving father whose children adore him, that he is a picture of successful man who is faithful to his wife, that is needed in all ethnic communities. If you can't celebrate that because he's liberal or black, examine your heart. It starts with our hearts. Where does it go when these issues show up on your Facebook wall? It also is our minds. Like, what do you know about being black or Hispanic or Asian or Native American living in America? Like, if you're white, you don't know much. I've read some books. I've watched some movies. Okay, that's good. That's a start. That's, that's what we need. That's the bare bones basics of what we need to do. Like, like I, I mean, I grew up in a, a neighborhood in Baton Rouge where I would go out to play and I'd be the only white kid. It was a transitional neighborhood. The only white people in the neighborhood were old people who had moved there and built homes in the 40s and 50s. Well, by the time the 80s came around, all their kids were in the suburbs. So I was the only white kid in this neighborhood except for one state trooper who had a son. So even growing up with that experience, not really being confronted, like all my friends at school were either black, white, or Asian, not really being confronted with the reality of racism until I moved to Western Monroe High School. I still don't know much. Still have so much to learn. I'm not some kind of expert. None of us should assume that we are. And so learn, read, watch, consume resources like the ones we share with you following our Rhythm Sunday last October. Or better, ask friends of different ethnicities to help you understand. And don't assume anything. Like, don't assume that they'll even want to. They might think you're really weird. What does it mean to you to be black in America? Why are you asking me that? Or they may embrace you and say, I'm so glad you asked. Don't assume their experience is the same as everyone else's experience. If your world is mostly white, then ask the Spirit of God. Help you see how you can engage people of different ethnicities in genuine friendship. Not so you can have a token black, Asian, Hispanic friend. So you can then post pictures on Instagram to show people how multicultural your life is. But because you love people. And you love all people. And we're going to be in heaven one day. And there's not going to be a white section, a black section, a Hispanic section, an Asian section. We're all going to just be mixed up somehow. Having a blast. So start now. By living that kind of life now. And there will come a time for action where you need to speak up. Maybe on social media, you demonstrate how the gospel speaks to issues of racial reconciliation by posting something that speaks to that. Or you come alongside others who have spoken up and are having to defend that position against other people. And you help them and show them support, encourage them. 
mostly not social media, you can definitely speak up in personal conversations with family and friends and neighbors and coworkers when racist attitudes or jokes are made, when racially insensitive attitudes are expressed, when a lack of compassion is demonstrated. Yes, just like with the Samaritan who stopped on the road to help the man robbed and beaten, it is going to be risky and costly and difficult. So emerging and engaging in this issue will be the same. But we are not called to a life of comfort and ease. We are not called to a life where all we get is positive feedbacks, likes and thumbs ups and ha ha's on our posts. When we have the life of Christ flowing through our bodies, when we speak as he spoke, when we love as he loved, when we show compassion as she showed compassion, sometimes we will be treated as he was treated. Philippians 1, 27-30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. I'm scared of nothing because we stand so securely in the gospel. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It has been granted to us, literally graced, gifted to us, to suffer for his sake as we engage our world and culture with the gospel. Like suffering for the sake of Christ is so synonymous with the New Testament, with the early church, with God's people for thousands of years, it, it is, should not be strange when it happens, it should be strange when it doesn't happen. And as we engage with the gospel on this culture, on this issue, we are going to suffer. We're going to make people uncomfortable. Now guys, we still do it with grace and love. We're not gospel-centered jerks. That by being a jerk, we're being captivating their minds, being controversial. Sometimes you're just a jerk. Quit being a jerk, right? 1 Peter 3.15 tells us we do everything with gentleness and respect. And that's in the context of giving the reason for the hope that we have. But even by doing everything with gentleness and respect doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. And so why? Who wants to sign up for this? Why do this? It's just, man, that's too hard. Let's just go back to the easy life, the lazy boy Christianity. Why do we do this? Let's go back to the four questions. Who is God? What has God done in Christ? Who are we and what do we do? See, in the story of the Good Samaritan, we can be so focused on the Samaritan and making sure we are like him that we totally miss the fact that in the story of redemption, we are the man robbed bloodied and beaten and left for dead on the road. That's, that's us. Before Christ. Just understanding that alone would kill a lot of racism. Understanding that's really our position. 
All feelings of superiority and pride would be crushed when we see ourselves accurately as a broken, beaten, robbed, and helpless one. Like, you think the guy on the road was shocked when the Samaritan came up to help him? No, no, don't help me. I don't like your kind. No, he was dying. And he needed life. And Jesus is the good Samaritan who came to our aid. On his initiative, paying the cost, risking everything, doing the dangerous and dirty work of picking our broken, sinful, sorry lives out of the muck and mud and giving us life, forgiveness, and salvation. In fact, paying the price with his life. Being beaten, stripped, robbed himself. And giving us the beaten, robbed, stripped one's life. Why? Because he is the compassionate one. He is the merciful one. God is compassionate and merciful to the broken. Christ came from heaven to earth to demonstrate compassion and mercy of God. We then, as the broken ones who receive compassion and mercy, we go and do likewise. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Who are those who have received mercy? Or who are the merciful, rather, it is those who have received mercy. We have received mercy and so we show mercy. We have received compassion and so we show compassion. How does that need to look in your life on this issue of racial reconciliation? Only you can answer that. But I would plead with you to ask the Spirit of God to show you what that needs to look like in your life. To discuss this over lunch, to discuss this with your MCs, to discuss this in DNA. What does compassion and mercy on this issue of racial reconciliation need to look like in your life? Now, whatever isn't showing up, don't just try to do more, try harder. Run to Jesus. Ask Him to help you see again His compassion and mercy that you have received at your worst and most undeserving and ask Him to help you to rest in that, to enjoy that, and to empower you to share that with others, especially those who are broken and beaten at the mercy of society. Don't just pass by. Engage. As we engage in this issue, may God help us not to forget that the Savior is Jesus. His compassion and mercy. Not us in our compassion and mercy. We are not trying to save people. Jesus saves them. The gospel is the solution, not our empathy and sympathy. Father, we are thankful that this is who you are. And we, as the recipients of your love, grace, mercy, compassion, have been given so much. And on this issue, Father, help us, help us to see how we can best share this with others, especially those who need it the most. No matter what they look like, no matter how hard it is, or difficult, or dangerous, or controversial it can be, just let us be your people, to all people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.